This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to have Kevin Brady on here. He's going to be retiring. It's going to be a real loss to the House, Republicans and Democrats. And Ro Khanna is going to be with us, too. Congressman from California, there's so much breaking news. we got sanctions going on to Russia, just announced executive order-wise. And then we have last night the, the Supreme Court situation. 1130, there'll be a press conference. There's going to be press conference with the with the fallout from Brooklyn Center over in Minnesota. So we'll discuss that and we'll try to keep up with it all today. And Senator, keep your eye on this. Senator Tim Scott and Jody Ernst will have an event with the Iowa governor in Iowa. Hmm. You don't go to Iowa unless you're kind of interested in exploring maybe running for president. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. When a radical Muslim jihadist blows up a school, we're always told, don't judge all people of the Muslim faith by the acts of a few. And I agree with that. How come the same rule doesn't apply to police officers? Senator uh, John Kennedy making sense again. Four nights of riots counting in Brooklyn Center, too. And the female who unintentionally shot and killed Dante Wright arrested and charged with second-degree manslaughter. She's been released on bail. The nationwide war on law enforcement has to stop. We'll provide the balance for the blue. Number two. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. Ending the war in Afghanistan, Biden-style. Ill-conceived, illogical, and short-sighted. If we lose, if we leave, we lose. China inserts itself, Al-Qaeda thrives. That's the cost of taking out 2,000 troops. Number one. So our focus is to deal with the root causes, and I'm looking forward to traveling. Um, hopefully, it's my first trip to the Northern Triangle, um, stopping in Mexico and then going to Guatemala sometime soon. Yeah, don't rush. Uh, don't pick a date or anything, and don't even pick a location. At least she's doing something. VP uh, Harris heading to Guatemala soon, maybe, on why their population seems to be heading to our border. Maybe she can find time to ask the same question El Salvador, Honduras, and Mexico. Meanwhile, at the border, chaos reigns. Kids are being dropped over walls. Tents are housing kids and families and are still bursting at the seams in population. Desperate governors and sheriffs beg for some federal help. In fact, the governor of Texas and the governor of Arizona uh, penned an editorial together saying... Our sheriffs are overworked. Our small-town mayors are begging to have their issues addressed. Security is out of control, and these governors cannot get the attention of their Democratic president. Sad. Here's Kamala Harris pledging to do something, I guess. Cut one. The president has asked uh, Secretary Mayorkas to address what is going on at the border, and he has been working very hard at that and, and is showing some progress because of his hard work. I have been asked to lead the issue of 
dealing with root causes um, in the Northern Triangle, similar to what then-Vice President did many years ago. Yeah, right. Uh, here's the thing. What Trump did worked. He went over there and said, aid stops, tariffs will start unless you get a hold of your population. Mexico took that as more than a request, put 30,000 Marines at their southern border, and they had they were welcome to a Remain in Mexico policy. He got rid of that. He ignored that. When Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador stepped up, they got their money back and more. Great diplomatic work from uh, Mark Morgan at the time, going back and forth. Uh, we saw a lot of progress, including with Stephen Miller, because— they had the same objective. They wanted to be better for their people. Their people thought it would be better coming here. They had to disabuse them. They would, they would be excited to get here. Remember, the first country they walked into, if you want to apply for asylum, do it there. And that's what cops kept everybody coming. When it came to Mexico, they stopped them in Mexico. That's how we got control of the border. Not that hard. Uh, Harris gave up the border portfolio, even though she was given it. Cut three. There's an important four-letter word, which I hope always inspires us to do the work we do. And that word is hope. And in this regard, in, in our focus on the Northern Triangle, looking at the fact that we have an opportunity as the United States of America, with the resources and with the will that we have, to provide the people of the Northern Triangle with some hope that if they stay at home, help is on the way. We write a check to them. So we get $60 million a week just for unaccompanied minors here. Then we got countless dollars for housing. Now you have $2 billion put aside for illegal immigrants to get $15,000 payments. And then let alone what California is doing and other states are doing, let alone living off our legal system and our, our welfare system, and now help is on the way? Yeah, they're coming our way. That's the issue. Here's Liz Cheney, cut five. We think it's really important that um, the press continue to ask the White House uh, about the um, extent to which the, the president has said Vice President Harris is in charge of the border. Vice President Harris said she was not in charge of the border. Uh, nobody seems to be in charge. She hasn't been there. And we have a humanitarian and national security crisis and, and health crisis unfolding there. Uh, no question. And then we watch this situation. If you've seen the video, you'll remember it. Uh, we have an 18-foot wall over in this section of California. And it looks like two people, a father and son, one from Ghana. They're from Ghana. Ghana, Africa. They go over to South America and they walk thousands of miles to get here. Then no wonder they say 150 countries are represented on our southern border. They dropped the two-year-old into the father's hands. Thankfully, he caught him. So this is what's going on. This is the drama at the border it would be played nonstop on every channel. With the, the kids in pens would be nonstop on every channel. Instead, they willingly ignore it and allow themselves to be kept out of this. You know, since some desperation, I see this, uh, the governors today, Gary Gabbard and Doug Ducey, they write, uh, the Biden administration recently made an astonishingly out-of-touch statement, the border is secure. The president himself needs to take a trip. Unlike President Biden, we've both been in the U.S. border in our respective states, Texas and Arizona. The U.S. Border Patrol is overwhelmed. Local law enforcement and mayors are calling out for help. Citizens and border communities are concerned for their safety. And nonprofits left to pick up the pieces of a broken federal system. The president and VP campaigned on a platform of relaxing border security. And that's the message sent. They also rushed to repudiate policies of the Trump administration. These actions have led to an unprecedented surge of migrants who are overwhelming 
the border. That should do them in. It should. I hope on 2022, if we don't have millions here already. I mean, who authorized using taxpayer dollars to give out $15,000 payments to people who say, who they say on definition don't belong here? The other, uh, the other issue coming up is what's happening in Afghanistan. And most of you don't agree with me. I don't use the term endless war because it's not an endless war. The original invasion was there. We'll have to oust the Taliban, oust al-Qaeda because they wouldn't give up the, uh, because Taliban wouldn't give up al-Qaeda. We ousted them. We let them reconstitute. They have. We have uh, allowed them. The sitting government, for some reason, has been unable to get together a security force. Got it. We have 2,000 people here. We have lost 2,000-plus lives. We have 20,000 wounded. How we end matters to those wounded, too. What did I fight for? So we leave, we lose. That's how I view it. Do you view it differently? Well, for the most part, the polls are too close to call. A lot of people think they've had it with this war. Uh, I want the results. Every day we're there is another day that we know what's going on with ISIS and al-Qaeda. They're there, and the minute we leave, it's going to look like they won, and that will bolster their numbers. In the Middle East, more than any other land in the country, they go with the strong horse. It didn't stop Joe Biden for saying this yesterday, cut nine. The United States will begin our final withdrawal, begin it on May 1 of this year. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. And we will do it in full coordination with our allies and partners who now have more forces in Afghanistan than we do. And the Taliban should know that if they attack us as we draw down, we will defend ourselves and our partners with all the tools at our disposal. Right. Fine. Uh, airstrikes would have kept the Ghani government in place. It's not Karzai. The guy was compliant. He was appreciative. And now you're going to tell them to go negotiate with the Taliban for a power-sharing agreement. Have you met the Taliban? Do they seem like the power-sharing type? General Petraeus just put this out. He led the surge in Afghanistan under President Obama. I'm really afraid that we're going to look back in two years from now and regret this decision. I think we need to be really careful with our rhetoric because ending U.S. involvement in an endless war doesn't end the endless war. If it just ends our involvement, and I fear that this war is going to do that, it gets worse. No kidding. Lindsey Graham, cut 15. With all due respect to President Biden, you have not ended the war. You have extended it. You have made it bigger, not smaller. You're going to do to us what you did in Iraq, put us in a world of hurt. So a poll is given. Listen, I know most of you shaking your head and you agree with President Trump and President Biden. Uh, I'm not one of them. Uh, I've talked to enough people in the military that have sacrificed so much, too, that uh, I thoroughly believe it's a security issue. Here's the question, uh, and then I'll take a break to get ready for Kevin Brady. That was put out by Gallup. Do you think the war with Afghanistan has made the U.S. safer or less safe? Less safe, 46 percent, safer, 43 percent. That is bad messaging because being keep an eye on uh, taking out al Qaeda and understanding what they do and how they operate has kept America pretty much, except for some incidents, they're damaging uh, from 9-11, basically uh, devastating terror free. And we got a real handle on that organization. When we come back, Congressman Kevin Brady. Then I'm going to go to Democrat Congressman Khanna, who believes that this is a good move. I don't. Back in a moment. 
Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It, it, it dispenses with any pretense of principle. It's just a raw muscle play. It's like a hostile takeover of the court. And I, I don't really understand the political logic here, but what, I, what really concerns me is that this is really a test of principle for Democratic members. I'll be watching today to see what senators, what House members step forward and say, this is wrong. This is raw court packing. We can talk about the size of the court. Many of us have talked about expanding the court over the years. This is raw, unadulterated court packing. And that's what Democrats got to be announcing at official 1130 today. They're going to look to add four Supreme Court justices. And if they can get rid of the filibuster, they'll do it. I cannot see them getting 60 votes in the Senate. Are there some Democrats who understand that we should not overturn this rule that's been in place since 1869? Let's bring in a Republican congressman from Texas, Kevin Brady. Congressman, were you shocked to hear about this press conference and this move to pack the court? Yeah, I really am, Brian. Again, thanks. I love coming on your show and just your whole voice for our, for our country. Um, yeah, uh, in some ways, politically not surprised. Let me just say, no one over the years has been talking about expanding the Supreme Court. Nobody. Uh, this is, this is as, as said, raw political power. They think they can... Uh, overturn, shape, manipulate uh, the Supreme Court. But I will just tell you, just like them overturning the filibuster in the Senate, there's real consequences here. And uh, at the end of the day, I don't think the country or Democrats are going to like the path they're going down. The new member of the squad, this congressman from New York, I apologize, Mondaire Jones, and says this, uh, SCOTUS gutted the Voting Rights Act to allow George SB 202 to become law. SCOTUS gave partisan gerrymandering. It's still approval. Expansion to the only way forward. Expansion is the only way forward. He said because they made those rules, 
that the Supreme Court's got to be watered down. Yeah, that whole statement is nonsense. What the Supreme Court said was it isn't just the media that can speak about candidates the last 90 or 60 days, that freedom of speech means that individuals, families, businesses can be part of this political discussion conversation in these election times. So really what he's talking about is the suppression of free speech in America. There, That is an excuse, in my view, Brian, to pack these courts. Unbelievable. So infrastructure, as you, former chairman of Ways and Means, now ranking member, you know all about spending. And now they're looking to jam this down our throats, $2.2 trillion. You guys came back with a counterproposal about $650 billion. They they admit, the White House admits, only 5% of the $115 billion go to roads and bridges. And you're talking about uh, the small portion of the total bill. Uh, Roughly $1.4 trillion includes $100 billion to upgrade and build schools, $174 electric car production, $213 billion public housing, $580 billion for manufacturing initiatives. And they're also looking to gain on unions. So where do you you think this stands? Well, I think it's on shake your ground that the White House uh, likes to admit. Look, the COVID package wasn't about COVID. The infrastructure bill is not about uh, infrastructure. It's Green New Deal. It's social welfare and programs, new entitlements. And, of course, it is a, a record level of tax increases on job creators at the very time we want them to be hiring people. And so, look, this is just that socialist agenda that we're fighting. But uh, I'll tell you, people who have long supported infrastructure um, on, on both sides uh, of the aisle uh, now believe these tax increases will do more damage than mm-hmm. any, any infrastructure will do for jobs uh, in America. And I think there's starting to be some buyer remorse already. We're not there yet. This is going to be a brutal fight. There's no question about it, but this is the fight we need to be in because, as you know, you cannot spend, tax, and borrow your way to prosperity. Not in the long term. You can't, and that's exactly what we're seeing up here. So when you guys say, well, we'll buy into infrastructure, then when they set that deal, then they brought some Republicans and Democrats to the White House on Monday, was any progress made? And if Joe Manchin holds his ground, they're going to have to deal with you or give up on the project, right? Yeah, I would think so, but but it's so early in this uh, in this uh, game to uh, to know where what their next play honestly is going to be. That's but but I'll tell you this: um, when people say, "Why can't you just compromise? Why don't you believe this should be paid for?" You know what they're asking is: President Biden came up with a socialist agenda wish list and massive tax increases. Why won't you help pay for his plan? We're not going to do this. Roads, bridges, ports, airports, broadband. We agree that, that, that investments need to be made, but not at this level and not wrapped up in all this Green New Deal. And at the end of the day, America is going to be a net loser because of this bill. Right. Any growth from, uh, from infrastructure is going to be way superseded by this crushing, these crushing new taxes. Congressman, I was distressed to hear the news. You're not going to... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Run for re-election. Uh, Why? 
Yeah, so look, uh, one, I love my job, and I love who I work with, and I love these fights on economic freedom and other things. But, you know, 25 years in, in public service in Congress is a lot. Uh, Kathy and I have talked about this, and, you know, you just know when the time is right, uh, and, and it is. Um, but in the meantime, we are full throttle fighting this uh, this socialist agenda. So you're you won't see me uh, going away anytime soon. But in the last twenty seconds, is it because you don't feel the house is gettable next time around? And you oh no, no, just the opposite. Uh, we are going to win back the majority. I think you know we have term limits on committee leadership, so I won't be chairing the Ways and Means Committee when we take uh, the majority. But I, let me just tell you. That committee is uh, super talented. We're going to have great leadership. All right. Uh, it's America's loss because I know Democrats really respect you, too. I'm well, sure some of, them, uh, some of them are too partisan to uh, think so, but <laughs> I think most of them agree. Uh, you're a class you, act, Congressman, but I hope you keep coming on. Absolutely. Take care. You got it. Congressman Kevin Brady. Coming up next, Congressman Ro Khanna, a Democrat out of California. He's happy we're leaving Afghanistan. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think announcing the date is... uh is something that the administration would have had to do because we're going to start withdrawing our troops. It's a long logistical process, and so I have less of a problem with that, but far greater problem with the fact that Afghanistan uh, is still home to al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda's leader, Ayman Zawahiri, is still at large. ISIS is still a threat there, and I still believe we need a forward-deployed presence, and I would draw a distinction between that and an endless war, in order to detect threats and preempt them before they're visited on our shores. When we remove our forces, will degrade our intelligence and other collection uh, on al-Qaeda and ISIS. And and the overriding concern is to deny al-Qaeda and ISIS a safe haven uh, from which to launch attacks against us as they did on 9-11. That is Dan Hoffman, extremely respected, knows the region well, worked for years, worked for years uh, for Russia as they actually invaded Afghanistan the first time. That was 1979. They left in humiliation. Uh, we're leaving, and this is going to be a loss. Now, most of you say, who cares? We're out of there. We should be out of there. Afghanistan's just a pile of rocks. Strategically, it is not. It puts us right in the middle of all of that. You just heard a CIA professional bring it up. General Petraeus just put this out, a statement. I'm really afraid that we're going to look back two years from now and regret the decision. I think we need to be really careful with our rhetoric because— Ending U.S. involvement in an endless war doesn't end the endless war. If it just ends our involvement, I fear that this war is going to get worse. The majority of the country in a recent poll by Gallup agrees with my next guest that we should get out. Congressman Ro Khanna joins us now of California. Congressman, you think this is a good move. Welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. I think it's a good move. President Trump uh, thought it was a good move. Uh, And uh, President Biden is now... Uh, it's finally getting us out of the war. It's costing us $50 billion a year. Our troops have been dying and are at risk. Uh, and we did our mission. We got bin Laden. Uh, we've destroyed al-Qaeda. And they know, they know, Taliban knows that if they uh, start to harbor al-Qaeda in any way again, we will uh, bomb them. And they, they, they will not uh, want that kind of onslaught. From what base are we going to bomb them? 
Well, we will have uh, assets in the region. I mean, you know, I don't want to go into the details, but there there will be assets in the in the region from which we can strike them, and that uh, will. Uh, right. be something that they're aware of. You know Iran's coming in, right? Even though they were enemies before this war, they're now allies with the Taliban. And you know we're basically giving the Taliban the country because the security forces are not going to be able to hold off the Taliban. They haven't been able to as we pull back onto an advising, advisory mission. In a year and a half, we've lost two guys. We've lost more in training missions here. Brian, I, I agree with you, but look, the Taliban controlled 70%. I mean, when we had the surge, they were at 50%. They've been controlling more of that territory. And you alluded to the Soviet Union. Uh, there were many reasons the Soviet Union lost the Cold War, but one of the reasons was they got bogged down in Afghanistan. I want us, and we've talked about this before, to be focused on winning and not uh, uh, losing out to China. And I don't think being bogged down in Afghanistan helps that cause. Listen, uh, I, you're not coming from a minority point of view. I get it. I get that President Trump wanted out of there. But President Trump, I n- vo- totally disagreed with him there. But I thought that in the end, he listened to his military leaders. He scaled back but didn't get out. Here's what Lindsey Graham, and I don't think you would argue with me, with me, is pretty tight with President Trump. Here's what he – and knows the region well. I think he's been there 50 times, probably 60 or 70. Cut 15. With all due respect to President Biden, you have not ended the war. You have extended it. You have made it bigger, not smaller. You're going to do to us what you did in Iraq, put us in a world of hurt. And you remember two years later, Barack Obama, who ran on not going to war in Iraq, had to put troops back in. And this group called ISIS was now constituted and was still dealing with the after effects there. Do you fear that, uh, Congressman Khanna? Do you fear that type of back to the future? There, there is some risk, I hope, and, and I'm sure every American hopes that that's not going to happen. And I think we have – that's why we're keeping regional assets there and making it clear to the Taliban that if they harbor al-Qaeda in any way, that we reserve the right to strike them again. It would be utterly irrational, given that we totally destroyed al-Qaeda in 2001. They've seen the American military might. It would be utterly irrational uh, for them to do that. The one difference is also that al-Qaeda, as you know, has spread. So the threat to the United States is not located as much in Afghanistan as much as it, it spread in the Middle East. It spread to parts of Africa. So my view is we have to have counterintelligence, uh, but I don't think this troop deployment in Afghanistan is really uh, what's most urgent to keep us safe. So do you realize uh, the way we – I don't care how we spin it here. Back there, they won, and they go with the strong horse in the Middle East, and that and, and al-Qaeda and ISIS are there now. And you know nothing has changed about the Taliban doctrine. By, by religion, by law, you have to welcome another Muslim who wants to be there. They're not going to tell them to get away. They're, they're never going to tell them to get away. Well, Brian, you're never going to get me to defend the Taliban. I mean, I agree with you. They've been uh, oppressive of women, oppressive of people who are gay. Oppressive we're, we're, of hey, Congressman, what do you think they're going to do to women uh, now well, if they take that country back? Well, we've got to push to make sure that we get as many human rights uh, for women as possible. But I'm a concern. I mean, I agree with you. They have a horrible record with women. They have a horrible record uh, on, on, on human rights. Uh, but I don't think, and I guess this is, I don't think the American military can go around the world and promote uh, democratic human rights and transform societies. I just think that's asking too much of our troops. And culture takes uh, generations. We can stand up for our values. We should 
push as hard as we can. But I don't think we can expect our troops to stay there 10, 20, 30 years until uh, they become a liberal democracy. I mean, that that's taken. I don't think we can expect that in, in, in of the Taliban. Yeah, we've already got this, 20 years is one generation. You have a whole generation that grew up. We're able to go to school, uh, even though they then go in whatever it took. They were going to go be, get educated. They've worked their way into government and no one thinks that they're going to be a democracy. But uh, they we're pulling out. And I sadly believe we're going to be back here in a year and a half saying, how do we get back in? Only China is going to have a bigger presence there. Russia is going to have a bigger presence there. And Iran's going to have a bigger presence there. The other big news, because I know you're on Armed Services Committee, is that we've put sanctions on Russia and we put it on individuals and we put it on because of um, solar winds and because they played a role on disinformation in the 2020 election. Two days or three days ago, we asked Vladimir Putin for a summit. Are we? Are you concerned that we're not speaking on the same hymn sheet, uh, singing from the same hymn sheet? Well, we need to do both. I mean, I support the sanctions. And the solar winds is, is, is very scary because what you have is basically hacking into uh, government agencies uh, that are exposing some of our most sensitive information. And I'm most concerned about the cyber war where you could have Russia or China uh, hack into uh, our electricity system, our financial system. There is a large vulnerability still. So the sanctions are appropriate. We need to make sure they understand that the United States is not going to tolerate that. But what choice do we have but to engage? I mean, President Reagan engaged with Gorbachev. We, we have to engage world powers to try to make progress while being firm uh, in our, our values and for standing up for our safety. And do you think you punch somebody in the mouth and then say, let's talk? Listen, they're a bad I actor. We, I get it. I think we make it clear that there have to be consequences uh, when you hack into the United States government and steal uh, personnel information. Just like when we take talk to China, there have to be consequences when they're stealing our IP or when they're dumping their product into the United States. But we still have to meet with them. And I think, uh, look, it's a hard job being the American president, but the but they have to balance the, the view of engagement while standing firm uh, for our values. Uh, looking at the uh, the border, uh, do you think the vice president has just punted when asked to get involved and head up border policy for the president of the United States? Unlike what Joe Biden did for Barack Obama, he didn't recoil. He went. Why is the vice president so reluctant to go? I mean, she is going. I mean, she, she should do exactly what uh, Vice President uh, uh, Biden did. I mean, President Biden has made it clear that she's in charge of the root causes uh, of the, the the problem. Uh, and there are many root causes. It uh, has to do with the drug war. It has to do with the brutal human rights suppression in Honduras, Guatemala, uh, El Salvador. And, and she's my understanding is she's planning a trip to the Northern Triangle. And this should this is, as I understand it, the one major task she has in the in the administration. And she should do what Vice President Biden Uh, tried to do uh, under the Obama administration. So President Biden talked about being vice president, being in Turkey and flying right to Guatemala. And she was given this portfolio 20 days ago. And she says, I'm going to make plans to go to Guatemala and maybe Mexico. Does she know El Salvador is right there and could save money going right to Honduras on gas? I mean, have you ever seen such a lackadaisical response to an emergency situation? Unless you don't feel it's an emergency. Brian, of course, it is an urgent situation. I mean, I don't want to 
quibble over words. The problem, the point is, there are a lot well, of twenty days. Across, uh, the problem is, there are people coming to the border. No one wants to see uh, children in the condition that they are. No one wants to see a uh, hundred, uh, you know, uh, or thousand people coming. It's 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 a risky journey. I mean, that's not it's not good for the United States. It's not good for the people who are who are trying. And so. I believe the, the the vice president should take this very seriously. I I agree that it's one of her highest uh, priorities. And my guess is she wanted to be fully informed. I mean, she's uh, just assumed office. She wants to get all the facts. But I think you're going to see active engagement. And she's going now, as I understand it, uh, to to the Northern Triangle and to have these uh, these meetings. And she should meet with people to understand what what is propelling them to come. And what do we need to do to get to the root cause so that uh, they feel that they want to stay uh, in the countries that they, they grew up in? You know, the, the, the thing is, Brian, I'll say this as a, a son of, of immigrants. Um, most people want to stay in the community they grew up in, in the nation they grew up in. Obviously, America is an enormous place that, that draws uh, it's the greatest country in the world. But what we have to figure out is how do we create conditions in those countries that we don't have people uh, coming to the border? I think everyone American can agree on that. Yeah, uh, but uh, the Romania Mexico policy, the wall not being built, if you come as an unaccompanied minor, you get to stay. You know those are magnets. And then when New York says, I have $2.5 billion set aside to give illegal immigrants $16,000 each because of the pandemic hurt, you have to admit these are magnet. Uh, these are magnet uh, policies that just say to you, "Now's the time to mortgage my house and leave." Brian, I, I mean, we may respectfully disagree. I don't think a immigrant uh, migrant sitting in Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador who is uh, facing violence and drug gang uh, warfare is looking at what New York policy is. I mean, I think they're thinking. Uh, I've got to flee this violence, and, and, and it's an act of total uh, desperation. And so my view is that, uh, you know, we could argue, and we have different views, obviously, on Trump's policies. But I think where we can agree is that how do you stop those conditions of utter desperation that are forcing people to flee? I mean, until you do that, uh, you're going to have a problem on our southern border. Absolutely. And there's got to be a, um, there's got to be some type of security on their borders. So last night we got word early evening that Democrats led by Jerry Nadler are going to have a press conference soon uh, talking about your party, talking about packing the court. Do they have Ro Khanna's blessing? That hasn't been my proposal. I have been uh, I have been for term limits. I uh, I think that the proposal I have has been uh, 18 years. As a as a set, as a Supreme Court justice, by the way, I'm for term limits for members of Congress and senators as well. Uh, I just think uh, if you're in public service, these are it's a democracy. These aren't lifetime positions, uh, and I think that would get at the problem and make, and depoliticize it. I don't want to see you know whether it's for Republicans or for Democrats, the court shouldn't be politicized. Do you think it should be nine people? Uh, right now, I'm, 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 you know, I mean, look, constitutionally, the court can be whatever it's supposed to be. That's been the history. But right now, I think given how polarized the country is, the best way forward would be to come together on term limits. I think if you uh, try to expand it uh, right now, that's going to further polarize and tear apart this country. And what I want to do is figure out ways we don't do that. And that's why I think that the term limits bill uh, could get 
uh, traction. In fact, Justice Roberts, I don't know what he thinks now. I haven't talked to him about it. Uh, but in the 1980s, he was okay with term limits for Supreme Court justices. So are you, if you were to see Nadler in the hall now or at the cafeteria, would you say, by the way, you don't have my vote? I'm not on that bill. I mean, he doesn't, I'm not, I'm not co-sponsoring that bill. Uh, so, you know, I think it's pretty understood. I'd say, why don't you get on my uh, uh, term limits bill? But ultimately, you know, the person who's going to matter is this is President Biden and his court reform commission, and they'll uh, look at everything. And my my sense is that uh, a term limits or something like that has a ha, has a better chance uh, right now, given how how polarized the country. Yeah, we. Yeah, we just lost uh, Congressman uh, Conniff. What makes it so interesting? He, he, Usually, there is no. Oh, there he's back. Uh, we lost you for a second, Congressman. But yeah, I will. I, I think you could have two. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I, that's I have to wrap up here. But we have like five more segments we could be doing. I appreciate you taking on all these issues on a time in which we have nothing but issues uh, well, that I we need to be. You're being fair. You're always fair. It's always great, and you always value sort of civility and conversation, and, and I think we need more of that in the country, so I appreciate that. And back at you, too. It's always great talking to you. Uh, Congressman uh, Ro Khanna, appreciate it. Back in a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's a failure of leadership by President Biden. He was right back in 1983. This was a terrible, terrible idea just to take over the court. But he has been really equivocating, trying to play to the far left. And this is the result. So this is this is the test of principle for the Democratic Party. You can't stand for constitutional values and be a party in favor of court packing. It's true, and Jonathan Turley scrambled last night to join us on Fox and Friends, so he was able to bring those new sound bites back. And I just, I just think they're trying to destroy history. I mean, they're trying to destroy the country if you think about it. And I'm not, I'm not just somehow throwing this out here to get you to call, but if you think how they're attacking police in this country, law enforcement, and painting with a broad brush, think about what they're doing now with our courts. Think about how they're inaccurately portraying 41 states who are reigning in laws that were expanded during the pandemic, saying it's Jim Crow on steroids. They're making you doubt everything up and down and then pulling out of the country where 9-11 came from on the 20-year mark. Jerry, weigh in in Chicago. Good morning, Brian. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'd just like to comment a little bit on uh, the congressman that you had on earlier. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Joe Biden's administration will not bomb anybody. If we pull out of Afghanistan and then in two years when the upheaval starts in there again, we're not going to bomb anybody, okay? This is what they want, okay? All of our troops that died for our freedoms are going to be for naught. Okay? This administration is just giving everything away. 
So far, the Secretary of Defense has been very, very humble. He wants to attack his own people and reset his own military rather than take on our real enemies. But they did sanction Russia, not bomb, but sanction. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. What a great day to have Admiral uh, Bill McRaven on. You know, uh, he's got a great book called The Hero Code. It's just, you know, you'll get through it in, in about an hour. And a bunch of great stories that will make you a better parent, a better leader, uh, a better person. And he, of course, is one of the best. He is, uh, I cannot wait to have him weigh in on what's going on with Afghanistan. We're all pulling out. Everybody out by 9-11. Nice job picking that date. I am firmly against that uh, from almost everything I've read. It's going to do nothing but jeopardize our security in a time in which over the last year and a half we've only lost two guys. Two guys, too many, yes, but we've lost more in training accidents here in the U.S. We'll discuss that with him. And we have another special guest standing by. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. When a radical Muslim jihadist blows up a school, we're always told, don't judge all people of the Muslim faith by the acts of a few. And I agree with that. How come the same rule doesn't apply to police officers? Not really sure Senator Kennedy always puts it in a very succinct way. Four nights of riots and counting in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And the female officer who unintentionally shot and killed Dante Wright, arrested and charged with second-degree manslaughter. The nationwide war on law enforcement has to stop. We'll provide the balance for the blue. Number two. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I guess so. Uh, ending the war in Afghanistan, Biden-style, ill-conceived, illogical, and short-sighted. If we leave, we lose. China inserts itself, and al-Qaeda thrives along with Iran. That's the cost of taking out 2,000 troops. Number one. So our focus is to deal with the root causes, and I'm looking forward to traveling. Um, hopefully, as my first trip to the Northern Triangle. Um, stopping in Mexico and then going to Guatemala sometime soon. Yeah, take your time. 20, 25 days, arbitrary date, no idea if we're going by uh, Mexico or not. That is the vice president of the United States. At least she's doing something. She will be heading to Guatemala whenever she gets around to it. Why their population seems to be heading to our border. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe she can find out, too, and ask some questions of El Salvador and Honduras. They seem to be coming here as well. Meanwhile, at the border, chaos reigns. Kids are being dropped over walls. Tents are housing kids and families and are still bursting at the seams. Desperate governors are writing editorials trying to get the president's attention. Sheriffs are begging for some federal help. But first. The great and almighty Chris Wallace. You can't help your star power. That's true. I can't. I mean, it's just there. What can I say? Chris Wallace is on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Chris, Welcome. You make me sound like the Wizard of Oz. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Right. These guys have got to be – they've got to be disciplined. Seriously, they mock you. They mock me. I mean do you understand you have a bunch of 
insurrectionists in your in your shop? Yeah, I'm not well liked. Um, well, and, and I, I, evidently I'm not either. They, they make fun <laughs> of both of us. So uh, Eric was out for the last few days. So uh, without Eric, we really there was nobody who really cares about you enough to do a montage. So we used what an about, old one. What about Allison? Not really. They're not really that into you. Well, I don't want her to be into me. I just want her to do her job. But, you know. <laughs> You're the only one with a montage, period. I mean, but, come on. I was, is that right? Nobody, no, no other guests have a, a, a little production Nothing. every week? Nobody. You mean you just say, and here's Brett Baer, and, and then he just comes on. He doesn't get... He doesn't get the orchestration. He doesn't get the voice of God. He doesn't get the echo chamber. He doesn't get anything. Nothing. Here's Brett Baer. That's know, it. Does it. Let me ask this. Does he know that? Nope. He has no idea. I don't even think he knows we're on the radio. He thinks we're just talking and I'm in my office. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I always think, too. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I really think I, <laughs> sometimes I think I think are people actually listening to this? I don't know. Anyway, OK, well, go no, ahead. Let's go. So uh, so, Chris, I want you to read. Uh, I, I you know, it's not unexpected. Donald Trump was going to do it, too. I'm firmly against. I just feel it makes put us in great jeopardy, leaving Afghanistan, telling we're doing it and. Uh, knowing that the Taliban is on the march. I'll read you what General Petraeus just released. He goes, quote, I'm really afraid that we're going to look back in two years from now and regret the decision. I think we need to be really careful with our rhetoric because ending U.S. involvement in an endless war doesn't end the endless war. It just ends our involvement, and I fear that this war is going to get worse. It's hard to get a more credible source from the guy who led the last surge. Yeah, um, you know, I, I have very mixed feelings about this, to be honest. Uh, on, on the one hand, it has been an endless war. It's been 20 years. We really didn't go in there in the first place to set up a stable Afghanistan. We wanted to take out Al Qaeda and a safe haven for terrorists. Um, and, you know, as far as Afghanistan is concerned, it, it, it is going to end up as a civil war between the Taliban and Afghanistan. And, you know, it sounds cold hearted, but I don't know that that matters to us. I mean, do we want to be spending American blood and treasure? Uh, to protect a bunch of guys at, uh, in, in, in the government in Kabul. I, you know, I don't know about that. As far as, as the terror threat, which is definitely in our national interest, you know, there's a lot we're not going to know, which is are we going to keep not a military but a CIA presence there? Are we going to have uh, CIA paramilitary? Are we, uh, I, I talked to a top White House official uh, this week before the speech who said we are going to keep a regional presence we are going to, uh, you know, protect against any buildup. Uh, Al Qaeda is not even in Afghanistan anymore. They got a bigger presence in Africa and Yemen than they do in Afghanistan. And when I said to this official, "Well, I know, but what about uh, the, the people in Kabul? What about women?" The official said, "Look, in the end, we're not going to spend U.S. blood and treasure to protect the domestic situation in Afghanistan. That's up to them." Well, I mean, Dan Hoffman was on, so he's a CIA guy, and he, he put it very uh, uh, very succinct. And he says, this is what we're giving up. Cut 20. First of all, I would highlight that, that you know, during the Obama administration, during the surge, there were uh, 10 times as many troops there. And so we have withdrawn considerably. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the Afghan study group, which is led by General Joe Dunford, a retired Marine general, concluded that if the United States and NATO were to withdraw, then Afghanistan would become a base for terrorist operations within 18 months to three years. So that's a pretty clear and concise 
uh, level of concern for our national security if we follow this, uh, this decision that the Biden administration has made. And he also talks about the advantages of having a base uh, in an area that is surrounded by Russia, China, Pakistan, and Iran. And we, we have gotten so much intelligence over the years from being there. It isn't just about making sure women can read. You don't care if women read? I'm for it, but people want to marginalize that. Uh, they want to marginalize that part of our operation. But for 20 years, women got an education. They understood that they had a place in society. They didn't I have to stand behind. I, I agree with you. I mean, look, I, as I say, I'm conflicted. On the one hand, I, I can understand why right. you want to get out. On the other hand, look what happened. We, we pulled out of Iraq, and what happened? ISIS starts. They, they uh, commit you know, huge uh, war crimes and genocide across northern Iraq and, and Syria, and we ended up having to send thousands of troops back. I don't know what the right answer is. You know, I'm not the president. I, I, I literally, I, I, I can see both arguments. I just, I don't know. We'll see. I've, I've never but seen you like this. I just, I Chris, I've never seen you like this. You really, what, I mean, I'm hearing, I, I, I hear somebody that's flabbergasted, that really wants another topic, that wishes I didn't bring it up. Not true. I, I I know that you have set opinions on everything, which is why your family hates you. I don't have set opinions on everything, and I honestly don't know. Okay. Uh, let's change to another topic, right, one that maybe you do know. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's talk please. about the border. Here's uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who I know you respect and used to be an outstanding member of your panel, Cut Five. We think it's really important that um, the press continue to ask the White House uh, about the um, extent to which the, the president has said Vice President Harris is in charge of the border. Vice President Harris said she was not in charge of the border. Uh, nobody seems to be in charge. She hasn't been there. And we have a humanitarian and national security crisis and, and health crisis unfolding there. You want Afghanistan to go away, and you know, it's a difficult decision. They are ignoring the chaos at the border, and so are most of the press. With these soft facilities, I call them tents, uh, teeming. Look at the Donna facility. It's just spreading out, sprawling through Texas. And then you see what's happening in California, and you see an editorial by the governor of Arizona and Texas saying, we need federal help. Local sheriffs are begging for it. They need attention and a policy that's going to be effective. I've never seen a president just ignore it and the press allowing him to ignore it. Well, I disagree with a couple of aspects. I agree with you. It is a total mess. I, I, that part of it. I completely agree with him. When you had 172,000 border stops in March alone, the highest in 20 years, uh, we've got 20,000 unaccompanied minors in federal custody. The estimate is it'll be 35,000 by uh, the end of May. That is, is, a, is a real crisis. No question about it. I think the question of whether or not the president should go to the border or Kamala Harris should go to the border who cares? I mean, honestly, if they go, it's a photo op. It's not going to change anything. I, I do have a definite opinion on this. And, you know, look, when, when it became clear that we didn't have a handle on the J&J vaccine, what did the government do? They said, we're going to shut it down. Yeah. We're going to stop. Absolutely. We're going to study it. And then we're going to figure out how to proceed. I think, you know, I actually I do have a strong opinion on this. Do. We should do exactly the same on the border and say, no and nobody that comes across as being allowed to stay. Uh, if you want to seek asylum, you're going to have to do it in Mexico. I understand the political blowback because people say, well, now he's you know, gone back to being Donald Trump. 
but we can't have what we have now. And it doesn't matter whether the president goes to the border. He can do that from the Oval Office, but I, he's got to do something to, to, to shut it down until we get figure out a more orderly way to handle things on the border. And, you know, I'm not sure I even agree about that the press has been so easy. I saw a poll the other day, and it showed overwhelming support for the president and his handling of COVID and the economy and, the, and COVID relief and overwhelming opposition to his handling of the border. So folks are getting it. This is a mess, and, and uh, Joe Biden has, has – it's a self-inflicted wound on the part of the Biden administration. Uh, and here's where I agree with you. You don't need to physically go there. I get it. You know, you don't physically have to go to a J&J faction, uh, factory to find out if there's a problem with manufacturing, which there was in Baltimore. I get it, especially in this time where you could zoom in with these calls. But what happens is she has just not taken the mantle when she was given it. I'm talking about the vice president. I've never seen that before. And not even doing a Zoom call. Had one call with the Mexican president last Sunday, and she said, it went well. I might go to Gu- – it looks like I'm going to go to Guatemala, maybe Mexico. Why do you ask? That is, I don't need you to go to Guatemala. At least tell me what, show me you did everything you can to find out what the problem is. Well, I I would agree with the second part. I don't think, you don't go make a trip to make a trip. And if you're going to go make the trip and you're the vice president of the United States, so that's elevating it, you know, to the top of uh, of the issue policy agenda, and you come away with nothing, then you've made things worse, not better. But I agree, she needs she needs to be leaning more into this, and there needs to be more of a sense of action. Uh, part of the problem is it's not like you know you're dealing with countries that are like, oh, okay, I didn't understand. Now I'm going to be able to do it. There's a lot of corruption in in in, in Central America. So it, you know, and and I think in a lot of cases they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. So before you elevate it to a trip. I, I agree. She's got to make it clear that, that that here is what we're actively trying to do and report to the country. And, you know, it was Joe Biden who said, I'm going to give you the news, good, bad and different. I'm going to level with you. <laughs> if she's making efforts in these countries and they're stonewalling us, tell the American people that. Oh, that would be a great storyline. Uh, Guatemala stiff gives uh, America the Heisman. That would be a new one. Um, uh, by the way, I'm flipping channels. You used to work at CBS, and I was checking your resume. You're the same guy. Here's a little of your interview with the former first lady. A source very close to Mrs. Reagan told me today that she purposely, Mrs. Reagan, purposely leaked the story that she's no longer talking to Donald Reagan to try to force Donald Reagan out of the White House. See, there you are covering a story, doing a report, getting information. And going forward, can you, can you set us up? What was that about? Well, uh, I, I actually, your first fact was wrong. I was working at NBC. That was on a report on CBS this morning about a book that Karen Tumulty wrote. Yeah, I mean, this, this is quite a story. So I was covering the Reagan White House for six years, one of the great assignments of my whole career. And uh, a, a source close to Mrs. Reagan told me that Don Reagan, he was the chief of staff, had a hung up on her. They weren't getting along at all, and she wanted him out. And instead of just turning to her husband and saying, uh, honey, Don Regan hung up on me because she, she was really brilliant, Nancy Reagan. I talk about a bureaucratic insider. Yeah. She tells me they used to watch NBC. They'd sit up in the, in the, the study uh, on the second floor with TV trays and watch the president and the first lady watch the news while they were eating. And he, she, I come on and I say that. And he turns to her and says, Nancy? Is that true? That's my Ronald Reagan impression. She goes, yes, honey, it is. And about a day later, he was gone. 
<laughs> I remember it. Story, I, huh? That is fantastic. I remember reading Donald Regan's book. And little did I know I talked to Chris Wallace, who would be breaking that story years later. Um, and, and Donald Regan got back at her after he was fired because he hated her and he blamed her for all his problems. So he was the one that revealed in his book that, in fact, she had consulted an astrologer and told the White House officials what were safe days for the president to travel and what were unsafe days for him to travel. And literally for ever after, you know, after the assassination and attempt in 81, uh, that guided the, the, the leader of the free world travel. Chris, fascinating time. I wish we weren't against a break, but I could get more of this type of knowledge and, and reflective stories on Fox News Sunday. We can. And also you'll be talking to Chris Coons and John Cornyn. Uh, they, they have a bipartisan bill on China. We'll talk to them about why they can work on that, why they can't work on other things. And you know, I'm a little ticked at you because we also have, a, uh, as a guest, Bill McRaven, but you have him today. We're not going to have him until Sunday, but you know what? Our interview will be more interesting. Well, we'll see. I'll put him up against yours any day. Bring it on, Wallace. <laughs> what, what, is, what is this, Bongino and Geraldo Rivera? <laughs> no, we like each other. Back in a moment. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I mean, if she's looking for the root cause of our migration crisis, I can save her a trip to Guatemala. Just go to her own campaign website. I mean, if you want to know why people are coming to the southern border, listen to the way Democrats have talked about this country and the Republican Party. Uh, No wall, very little border security. We're going to decriminalize access to this country. Sanctuary cities are fine. You're going to have to do a heck of a lot to get deported. I mean, that's why they're coming. I mean, so, so no, she doesn't need to go to Guatemala. I can tell her Belize is doing well, Costa Rica is doing well, Panama is doing well. There are plenty of countries in that region. Um, they're coming here because of people like her and the way they talk about the issue. Because no accompanied, unaccompanied minor is going to be forced to leave. They've got to get housing and then send for their parents. That's the advertising that's going on in those countries. No more remain in Mexico. You get to the border, you're going to get through. That also helps when it, tur- when you do, when it turns out there's no security on the Mexican southern border. That also helps. And then when you have uh, advertising inside those countries saying if you come, you can stay, that also helps. And you can't t- also tell me that finding out that New Yorkers, Californians, and others gets $15,000 as undocumented, excuse me, illegal aliens through the pandemic. Why would you stay home? That's more than you make in a year. Magnet, magnet, magnet. When we come back, General William McRaven. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It took us close to 10 years to put President Obama 
commitment to, uh, in the forum. And that's exactly what happened. Osama bin Laden was gone. That was 10 years ago. Think about that. We delivered justice to bin Laden a decade ago, and we've stayed in Afghanistan for a decade since. Since then, our reasons for remaining in Afghanistan have become increasingly unclear. Not according to many in the military, including uh, General Milley, who's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the, the study done by Joe Dunford about the positives by staying in the area, even with a small presence. How does Admiral William McRaven feel about it? One of the most respected military men in the country, retired U.S. Navy uh, four-star admiral, author of, a gra- uh, author of another great book, The Hero Code, Lessons Learned from Lives Well Lived, which we're going to get into. But, Admiral, this news came out yesterday. It was not a big surprise. Welcome back, and what do you think about the president's decision? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, great to join you. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the, the uh, Biden administration came to the same conclusion that the Trump administration did, which is, you know, we're not going to be able to have a military solution to the problems in, in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, as a military leader, you know, at the end of the day, you just want to make sure your voice is heard. And I have it from very, very good sources that everybody from General Scott Miller, who is the ISAF commander, uh, to General Frank McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, and, of course, Mark Milley and Secretary Austin, all four men who have extensive experience in Afghanistan, had a chance to sit down and talk to the president and, and express their concerns and lay out all the risks. So what I know is that the president absolutely understands the risks that he and the country are assuming by, by leaving Afghanistan. Um, but he has made that decision. And I know from the military leaders I've talked to, uh, you know, we're a professional military. We're going to salute smartly and, and move out. So now that you're retired, what does Admiral McRaven think about that? Since you know and your intelligence or a phone call away or a text away to find out what's really happening on the ground. And you know that uh, where the, the attack on 9-11 20 years ago came from. And, you know, there's al-Qaeda and ISIS presence there today and the Taliban's presence is increasing. And they haven't really had a uh, they haven't really had a change of mindset. Uh, they're Sharia law centric, uh, anti women, and they're never going to reject Al Qaeda. Yeah. So I mean, remember the reason we went we went into Afghanistan, of course, was to ensure that uh, Al Qaeda did not have a safe haven uh, in As- Afghanistan, supported by the Taliban. So when you think about the last uh, twenty years, uh, we were successful in that aspect of the mission, no question about it. Uh, so now, if I'm a military leader and somebody says to me, look, here's the risks we're going to have to deal with. If we pull out of Afghanistan, there will be a resurgent Taliban. Uh, we will have to be concerned about al-Qaeda coming back into safe, uh, and establishing safe havens. I would tell them, I can handle the Taliban safe haven issue. You give me the resources, give me the latitude to do my mission, and I will be able to have drones overhead. I will be able to have intelligence assets uh, on the ground. I will ensure that we have a quick re- uh, reaction uh, team available. I will ensure that we have a combat air patrol available. So I think we can manage the terrorism threat. And, of course, the Taliban have never been an existen- existential threat to the United States. The Taliban have, I mean, the al-Qaeda have been that threat that concerned us the most. So as we pull out the, the 2,500 guys, and then I'm sure the allies will follow us, again, if I'm a commander— and you're giving me the mission, I can find out a way to keep, uh, to keep al-Qaeda at bay. Where are you? Where's your base? Yeah, well, again, you've got to negotiate that. But remember, nowadays, 
the the drones that we have, and I won't go into the into the exact specifics, but they've got a long dwell time, right? They had a long dwell time, so you could base them at a number of places in the region and still set up an orbit to maintain a 24-hour coverage of a particular region. This is not out of the realm of the possible. In terms of the aircraft support, you know, you put a carrier battle group uh, in the, the Gulf of Oman, you've got the reach, uh, you can come up the air corridor in Pakistan. So there are ways to do this. Now, let me be clear to your audience. Are there risks? Oh, you're absolutely right. There are risks. Look at All Iraq. Things, what's that? Look at Iraq. We were yeah, back there again, in two I'm, years. You bet. And, and, and so I'm hoping, and, I, and my expectation is we have learned from Iraq. And so our ability to keep an eye on the movement in Afghanistan is going to be critical. And again, I don't want your listeners to think that I don't think there are risks out there. You bet there are. Will there be a resurgent Taliban? There will. And I think the, uh, the Ghani government is going to have to ensure that the 350,000 Afghan national security forces that we trained are thinking about this and preparing to deal with the Taliban. Are there going to be threats to the women? There are. But, you know, when countries are under threat, uh, you know, they're just going to have to fight for, for their you know, living standard that they want. They're going to have to fight for their democracy. They're going to have to fight for what they want. Uh, we can help them in that regard. But at the end of the day, the Afghans uh, are going to have to step up and do some of this. But I do think that there are risks involved in pulling out of Afghanistan. I don't, I don't question that at all. The intel summary uh, shows that. My point is, if I'm a military commander and given the task of ensuring that al-Qaeda is no longer a threat or is not a threat coming out of Afghanistan, I think I can manage that if you give me the resources to do the job. Uh yeah, I, I you know, 2,000 guys. We have not lost a guy this year, thankfully, two guys last right. year. So it's not like it's a hot fight, and we're not looking to do the 70,000 that General Petraeus right. was asked to bring in. I was just going to read you Petraeus's comments. He said, I'm afraid that we're going to look back in two years from now and regret the decision. He goes on, I think we need to be really careful about the rhetoric because ending U.S. involvement in the endless war doesn't end the endless war. It just ends our involvement. I fear that this war is going to get worse. So I know you respect General yeah. David Petraeus. Very much so. And, and again, Brian, I, I would not dismiss his assessment at all. And I'm not saying that. Uh, as I said, the risks are out there. What I'm telling you is, from a senior military standpoint, if, if a Mark Milley and a Lloyd Austin and, and Frank McKenzie and Scott Miller have the chance to sit down with our civilian leaders and say, Mr. President, here are the problems you're going to have to address. Here's what's going to happen if we leave. And the president makes that decision. Then again, as a military, we have an obligation to say, sir, we got it. You've heard our voice. And now let's move out and, and do the best we can. And I know they will try to do that. Again, will it be easy? <laughs> no, it will not. Are uh, General Petraeus's concerns valid? You bet they are. But we're moving forward. Uh, you know, there, there's no point in looking back now. Let's look forward and figure out how to, uh, again, how to solve the problem. That's what we do in the military. All right. So, General, you, you went out to um, make your bed was a bestseller, number one bestseller forever. Everyone's reading it. They, they kind of <laughs> it spun off your commencement speech at the University of Texas. So you came out with the hero code. And it's not just about a bunch of great store military stories. It's about how to show values and integrity to kind of guide you through life. So you did it through telling stories, arguably the best way to do it and d different things that you try to get across. 
Number one, you talk about being humble. I'm going to just bring you to some of the stories and we can kind of move through it to give people an idea of why this book is so special. You say be humble. You tell the story of being at a dinner party and looking across and seeing this kind of quiet guy. uh, He ends up being an astronaut, the last one to walk on the moon. But how did he hold himself? Yeah, you know, I will tell you, uh, Brian, if folks like to make your bed, they're, they're going to love the hero code. Uh, it's kind of of the same sort of uh, construct. But this was remarkable. So, I mean, I go to this dinner party uh, and I'm sitting around the table and I'm chatting with this fellow for about an hour and a half. And, uh, and he's probably in his early 80s. He and his wife are there and they are just lovely. And I'm trying to, you know, kind of find out a little bit, bit about him. I find out he's in the Air Force. And I said, well, you know, my father was in the Air Force. My son was, is in the Air Force. And all he wants to do is talk about me and my family. He wants to know about my kids. He wants to know, you know, where my wife and I met and all. And, uh, and it isn't until after the dinner party that uh, Roger Staubach, the, uh, the Hall of Fame quarterback from the Dallas Cowboys who was with us, comes up to me and he says, uh, hey, I see you were talking to Charlie. I said, yeah, yeah, seems like a real nice guy. And Staubach says, can you imagine that? And I said, well, what are you talking about, Roger? He said, can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking on the moon? And it then occurred to me, this was General Charles Duke, the youngest man ever to walk on the moon. And never once in that hour and a half conversation did he mention that little tiny fact that he walked on the moon. But to your point, his humility did not come easy. You know, he comes back from the moon. He's a celebrity. He became a Christian. His wife became a Christian. He followed her, and he learned the value of humility. And today, he is just one of the gentlest, finest uh, men I've ever spent time with. Another example of hope. You talk about a mission to free POWs. And by the time they got there for this mission, they hadn't been moved. Uh, And you thought, wow, what a wasted mission. How does that play into hope? Yeah, you know, I had the opportunity, I think back in 2005, uh, to meet with the Sante Raiders. And uh, and of course, the great Texan, uh, Ross Perot, used to host uh, these guys every year. So uh, Sante was a POW camp. Uh, Green Beret went in to try to rescue these guys. As they get to the Sante camp, it turns out the North Vietnamese had moved the, uh, the prisoners earlier, and the Green Beret come back, and, and for years they thought, yeah, again, it was a failed mission until the POWs were released in 1975. And the story the POWs told was, you gave us hope. You gave us hope when we were sitting in another POW camp because they, the POWs heard about the raid. And the, and the guys in the Hanoi Hilton heard about the raid, and they said, we knew we had not been forgotten. And, he, and they said, that hope is what sustained us until we were finally released, because we knew that, the, that America had not forgotten us and were trying to do everything to rescue us. Hope is the most powerful force in the world, and we see it time and time again. And that was a, a great story in, in talking to some of these POWs. A great friend of our show is Gary Sinise, and you talk about General Abizade in a high-intensity <laughs> uh, meeting with all the higher-ups in command. Was it Iraq or Afghanistan? Iraq, right? A- Afghanistan. Afghanistan, Afghanistan actually, my bad. Yeah. And in comes this guy he didn't recognize. What was his request, and what did you get from this story? Yeah, so you we're having dinner with all these uh, generals and admirals. General John Abizade, the CENTCOM commander, is there, and in walks a civilian. He, he looks a little stunned looking at all the generals, and he said, uh, kind of blurts out, he says, Hey, uh, who's in charge here? And, of course, we all thought that was pretty funny. We knew General Abizade was in charge. And he goes up to Abizade, and he introduces himself. And he says, sir, I'm Gary Sinise. I'm an actor. I played Lieutenant Dan in the movie Forrest Gump. And, of course, we'd all seen it. It was a magnificent uh, movie, and he did a great job. And he says, I'm here because I want to bring school supplies 
to the children of Afghanistan. And it was interesting. As Gary went on, he made this impassioned plea about getting a C-130 so he could deliver supplies. And, you know, you can see guys around the room going, doesn't this guy know we're in the middle of a war? But then as he continued to talk, the entire tenor of the room changed. And as I point out in the book, you know, it's easy to get jaded by war. You can become kind of callous to the indifference and the suffering. And then all of a sudden, when you see somebody like a Gary Sinise or others that have compassion for these young kids in Afghanistan that go out of their way uh, to help people, it really kind of reaffirms your humanity. And man, the last thing you want to lose in the middle of a war is your humanity. And, and, and I know, you know, Gary, I mean, he has gone on every time I was at at Walter Reed or Bethesda, there was Gary Sinise, you know, trying to help soldiers, no fanfare. Uh, he's a remarkable guy. And again, I saw this in a lot of places, people with great compassion. Absolutely. And you talk about uh, some other things, integrity, go back in history, John Adams and the Boston massacre, defending British soldiers in a time of revolution in America. He was their lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and of course, if you listen to the historians, they will tell you that that was a seminal event in American law because it really was about the law. We, we were going to prosecute these British soldiers who were responsible for the Boston Massacre. And, and of course, nobody wanted to raise their hand and say, well, I'll defend them. But Adams did. And, and of course, it changed everything about how we did business as, as a legal system. My mother used to love to tell this story because it was about defending people that you didn't always agree with or that might be on the other side. And, of course, Adams wins the, wins the legal battle, uh, and they are, uh, they're set free because it was a, a case of self-defense. But, uh, a, again, a powerful moment in American history. What about you? Talk about humility. Uh, this is a quote from your book. I think it's from General McChrystal. Colin McRaven, the smartest SEAL on the, team, on the teams, <laughs> is like saying he's the fastest sumo wrestler in a race. What good is he? He's a Texan who can't ride a horse and a Navy guy who can't sail a boat. Basketball, the man's got two and two-inch vertical jump. Have a sense of humor, show some humility. That's what McChrystal was saying, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, as you know, Brian, it's kind of part of the special operations creed. You've got to harass people all the time. You don't want them to get an inflated head. And so I talk about the fact that humor is such an important part of these kind of noble qualities. And, you know, I saw humor all the time. When you go into the hospitals where these kids have been hit by an IED or, or shot, you know, they'd lost arms or legs or, or they were blast victims, and, and they would make a joke about it. And it was a way of saying, look, you may have beat me in the fight, but I'm not beaten. You know, you're never going to beat me until I kind of lose my sense of humor. So humor just becomes this both, both a sword and a shield. Right. And you always have to be prepared to laugh at yourself. If you're not, you know, if you take yourself too seriously in life, uh, it, it's not good for you and it's not good for the people around you. And people listening right now say, well, I'll never be a Navy SEAL, I'll never do this, Well, and I'll never be a famous actor, but be prepared to be special and be a hero. And you hearken back to Lincoln, and I'm up against a break, but as you said, Lincoln once said that I will prepare and someday my chance will come. Out there when you're listening, part of the hero code is pre-think what you're going to do in those situations where you have to step up. Yeah. Well, everybody, the point of the book, uh, Brian, is that you don't, as you said, you don't have to be astronauts. You don't have to be actors. Everybody can be a hero. You can learn from the great men and women who have been heroes. And I don't mean great as in notable, the great people that you see, the coaches and the cops on the street and, and the, the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, Marines. You can learn from these people 
and it will help you be a bit better person, and I think it will help the people around you. Right. Adam uh, William McRaven, great job. And please make this interview better than the one you do with uh, Chris Wallace because he <laughs> is my rival. The Hero Code uh, is the name of the book. Admiral, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Back in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. After uh, the meeting, Last night, we had some further discussion, right? Correct. And um, have you made a decision uh, today whether you intend to testify or whether you intend to invoke your Fifth Amendment privilege? Uh, I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. So Derek Chauvin decides uh, to take the Fifth, and it's not a big surprise. Uh, they say that the, uh, the prosecution would love to get a shot at him, and for the most part, defense— from the pedestrian level, from my my point of view, it was not that strong. The prosecution had a lot to work with, and if anything, they're probably guilty of uh, of overdoing it, uh, showing the video too much. But I cannot see that affecting the overall verdict. One thing I'm pretty certain of: no matter what they do, no matter what they rule, it will not be enough. We already saw that was happening in Brooklyn Center. We're seeing that because the police officer, who you can hear on uh, audio, you could hear that she clearly made a mistake a fatal mistake, a brutal mistake that will be with her the rest of her life. Obviously, the family of uh, uh, the family of uh, the right family, of course, for the rest of their lives as he lost his life at the age of 20. But there were protests last night and 24 arrested. The night before, there were 40. And people are saying, well, the charges aren't great enough. Uh, they aren't hard enough. They aren't strict enough. All cops are bad. And for some reason, that's not getting a lot of play. You got lawmakers essentially saying blow up the system. You have a former president saying reimagine policing. Imagine if you were in the uniform today. Now you're the target of every would-be criminal. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Uh, from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Appreciate you being here. Uh, keep in mind, too, if you ever want to watch the show, Fox Nation broadcasts it live. And if you ever want to get it on the podcast, BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Uh, coming up this hour, Vincent Everett Ellison will be with us, author of The Iron Triangle, talks about race in America. And Daniel Hoffman, former CIA station chief, served in Moscow, Iraq, Pakistan, uh, and South uh, Asia, as well as Europe. Fox News contributed more importantly. So Daniel Hoffman will be with us, putting in perspective the move by the president of the United States, not unexpected, but still bad, in my view, to pull out of Afghanistan. Also, coming down this morning, executive orders to sanction uh, Russia. Why? Sanction Russia for what they are doing, uh, what they did with the Solar Winds project. That's pretty clear. As well as just trying to judge, trying to deal with the volumes and all the sets I have, trying to follow the breaking news. But what happened is this morning we put sanctions on Russia, individuals as well as their apparatus, as well as their investment, trying to limit them there. 
I just think they're talking out of two sides of their mouth. One minute, they want to have a summit with Russia. The next minute, uh, the Russia is brush, brushing, uh, calling their, we're calling their leader soulless. And the next minute, we are sanctioning them. And the next minute, we want to meet with them. Which one is it? Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. When a radical Muslim jihadist blows up a school, we're always told... Don't judge all people of the Muslim faith by the acts of a few. And I agree with that. How come the same rule doesn't apply to police officers? Four nights of riots and counting in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And the female officer who unintentionally shot and killed Dante Wright arrested and charged with second-degree manslaughter out on bail. The nationwide war on law enforcement has to stop. We'll provide the balance for the blue. Number two. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. Ending the war in Afghanistan, Biden style. It's ill-conceived, illogical, and short-sighted. If we leave, we lose. China inserts itself. Al-Qaeda thrives. Iran comes in. That's the cost of taking out 2,000 troops. Number one. So our focus is to deal with the root causes, and I'm looking forward to traveling. Um, hopefully, it's my first trip to the Northern Triangle, um, stopping in Mexico and then going to Guatemala sometime soon. Yeah, you might want to see a travel agent and maybe set up a date. At least she's doing something. VP Harris, after 20-something days, is heading to Guatemala, she says, to find out why their population seems to be heading to our border. Maybe she wants to stop in Honduras, El Salvador, ask the same thing. Meanwhile, at the border, chaos reigns. Kids are being dropped near over walls. Tents are housing kids and families and are bursting at the seams. Still, desperate governors and sheriffs have to write editorials to try to get the White House's attention. Unbelievable. And I'll go over this quick because we I feel like it's the same story. The only thing different is this. Kamala Harris says she's going to go. Cut to. We have plans in the work to go to Guatemala um, as soon as possible, um, given all of the restrictions in terms of COVID and things of that nature. Uh, but these are areas of focus for a very important and good reason. So our focus is to deal with the root causes, and I'm looking forward to traveling. Um, hopefully it's my first trip to the Northern Triangle, um, stopping in Mexico and then going to Guatemala sometime soon. And why is that? Because she can't go to the border because it's embarrassing. She was making all these, when she was running for president, she was making all these appearances in front of what they said was centers where illegal immigrants were being housed, saying we will never treat people like that. That's not what America is about. Well, now we're in Donna, Texas, in a facility there, which we've already seen the pictures. It's kids in pens, and now those pens have gotten bigger. They're soft-sided facilities. I call them tents. So when you see how bad they're being treated, how some people are not even being processed, they're just let into our country, you can't pretend as if we're not going to play back those sound bites from when you were an aspiring candidate looking to take Joe Biden out at the knees. That's the problem. And it does not elude Trey Gowdy, who said there's a problem with the senator's track record, cut eight. I mean, if she's looking for the root cause of our migration crisis, I can save her a trip to Guatemala. Just go to her own campaign website. I mean, if you want to know why people are coming to the southern border, listen to the way Democrats have talked about this country and the Republican Party. Uh, No wall, very little border security. We're going to decriminalize access to this country. Sanctuary cities are fine. You're going to have to do a heck of a lot to get deported. 
I mean, that's why they're coming. I mean, so, so no, she doesn't need to go to Guatemala. I can tell her Belize is doing well, Costa Rica is doing well, Panama is doing well. There are plenty of countries in that region. Um, they're coming here because of people like her and the way they talk about the issue. And it's fact. President Guatemala said it by saying, I'm never going to have those horrible policies of Donald Trump. We're going to get rid of the remain in Mexico. It's a violation of international rules. If a kid comes to our border, they're going to stay. That is a go sign for every kid, for every parent to mortgage their house in order or give their house to a coyote, uh, a, a member of the drug cartel. They'll give the house. They'll keep the money. They'll take that house and they'll send their kid to what they think is freedom in America. Some are getting turned back. But if you show up as a kid by yourself, you get to stay if you survive. But we're seeing kids dropped off walls. you got to see this video in California. They provided it. It's grainy, but, man, it tells a story. It shows a kid going up an 18-foot wall, first the dad, and then the kid. dad sits on the other side, and he dropped the kid over the wall. The dad catches the 3-year-old, at which time we find out they're from Ghana. So people are coming from Africa into South America, Central America, and then walking thousands of miles, maybe on top of trains, to get here because this administration hasn't made it clear they can't stay here. What governor of uh, South Carolina said, by the way, you're not putting kids in my place. I got my own foster kids. My own kids get adopted. I'm not doing it. Same thing with South Dakota. Christy Nome says, don't bring them here. They can't stay here. Here she is talking yesterday on Laura's show, Cut Six. What I have determined by watching the actions of this president is that he is making America unsafe. Uh, these are people that are crossing our border illegally. We do not know who they are. Multiple news sources have told us that we have people on the terrorist watch list that are getting into this country this way, and they're not going to find a place here in South Dakota. Two MS-13 members found yesterday. So over to what's happening in Brooklyn Center. Kimberly Potter arrested. She'll be charged with manslaughter on the killing of Dante Right. You saw the video. You heard the video. She didn't know she had a taser. She thought she had a taser. She had a gun. Uh, a bullet goes into him. There was a warrant out for his arrest for what he did in 2019. Evidently uh, beat somebody up in order to get $820. Was never. Uh, they had a warrant out for his arrest. He never answered that warrant. They pull him over for a traffic violation. They find out there's a warrant, and then everything goes sideways. NBA players hold a moment of silence for Dante Wright. Minnesota Timberwolves canceled their game. Moment of silence around the league and in before the Nets game when they actually did get a chance to play. Uh, there were riots in Seattle, riots in Portland because of this. Albany, New York at the police station. It was attacked by anti-police rioters throwing bottles at officers. The utter disrespect for police has to stop. And it is not systematic, in my view, that if you are a minority, you're a target. Senator John Kennedy tried to make that abundantly clear. Cut 23. When a radical Muslim jihadist blows up a school, we're always told, don't judge all people of the Muslim faith by the acts of a few. And I agree with that. How come the same rule doesn't apply to police officers? And, and, and that's why I said, if you hate cops just because they're cops, I'm not defending bad policing, but if you hate cops just because they're cops, then you're wrong. And next time you get in trouble, just, you know, call a crackhead. See how that works out for you. Or call nobody. Uh, call a consultant. Let's reimagine who will answer the 911 call like President Obama wants us to. Isn't that responsible? So how much trouble is this 26-year-old veteran? Would I understand there's a spotless record in. Uh, Ellie Honig on CNN said this, cut 27. Something can be both accidental 
and negligent at the same time. To make mm -hmm. an example, if somebody drives while heavily under the influence and tragically hits and kills somebody, that may have been an accident. They may not have intended to hit and kill that person. However, by getting behind the wheel in that state, they may have created an undue risk here. So those two things are not necessarily exclusive of one another. My hope is uh, that people give her due process. They already fired the city manager because he wanted to give her due process. They fired the police chief because he wanted to be transparent. And they took, they heard this video full force, full sound. They tried to raid her house. Police had to be called there. They had to scramble. They did her and her husband two nights ago. Last night after she put up bond and was released, they had to surround her house with fencing and cement barriers. That's not due process. Daniel Hoffman will be with us next. Talk about the other major story, sanctions on Russia. And Daniel Hoffman will talk about the dangers of pulling out of Afghanistan. There are a lot. And then we'll talk to Vincent, uh, Vince Everett Ellison about the state of race relations and law enforcement today. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We went to Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened... 20 years ago. That cannot explain why we should remain there in 2021. Rather than return to war with the Taliban, we have to focus on the challenges that are in front of us. We have to track and disrupt terrorist networks and operations that spread far beyond Afghanistan since 9-11. Where are we going to be based? Uh, that might be a question that comes up. Daniel Hoffman, former CIA station chief, served in Moscow, Iraq, Pakistan, uh, South Asia, as well as Europe. Uh, Daniel, w uh, welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's been too long. Yeah, it's been too long. It's uh, always an honor and a pleasure to join you. So we really need your expertise now. Uh, we know there's no easy decision here. We understand the frustration, but I cannot feel good about this decision. I didn't feel good when President Trump kept saying we need to get out, and I don't feel good now. No, I don't either. And I can tell you from having been out in, in, in those places in Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, you know, we've got a small contingent out there of, of U.S. military and roughly in the 3,500 range, which enables all kinds of effective collection so that we can detect threats and preempt them before they're visited on our shores. And I think the, the concern, uh, and it's been emphasized in our intelligence community and the Afghan study group led by General Joe Dunford, a retired Marine Corps general, um, is that uh, if we leave Afghanistan, that it will become a base for terrorists um, and we will revisit, uh, you know, ungoverned space, which al-Qaeda used to target us uh, in 9-11. And, and, and obviously that's not what we want uh, going forward. And, and there'll be a vacuum behind us, and I think China is more than happy to take the rare earth, and Iran's got much better relations with the Taliban now, and Russia knows how to navigate while not getting dug in. Here is what Lindsey Graham said. He said a lot. Cut 17. I don't trust the Taliban to look out for American interest, but we're finding ourselves in a very precarious situation. Again, there are no great outcomes, but this is the worst possible outcome, is to pull up and leave and hope that things will turn out well. That did not happen in Iraq, and it did not happen here. 
We went back in two years, and President Obama said this was done. I'm never going to go in that war again. He knew it. If I don't put 10,000 troops back in there, we're going to lose Baghdad, and we, we can help create ISIS, right? Yeah, I was running the CIA's Middle East division there. I was ringing the alarm bells for our director, John Brennan, and he wasn't actually paying enough attention. But, yeah, I mean, listen, cognizant of the Obama administration's precipitous withdrawal of our forces from Iraq, that created the conditions for the massive growth and spread of ISIS in the region. It's uh, perfectly, I think, fair to consider that case as we're looking at Afghanistan. I think President Biden should have considered the distinction between endless war uh, and a forward-deployed U.S. presence, strictly limited in personnel, scope of mission, with allied burden sharing, so that we defend rather than outsource our national security to unreliable, hostile states like the ones you mentioned, Russia, China, uh, Pakistan, um, they, Iran. You know, they don't have our interests, uh, obviously, uh, you know, at heart. And uh, they will do more to foment sectarian violence, which creates a petri dish where the terrorists are growing. They keep saying that we're going to have this presence afar, a CIA presence. We're going to have a, a quick reaction force. Do you see this scenario the New York Times writes about today? No, I listen. All you have to do is listen to director of CIA Burns yesterday at the at the hearing. And he said, which what we all know, which is that when you remove our troops, it will degrade our intelligence collection on the ground in Afghanistan. And that will mean that we don't detect the threats maybe at all or maybe not as early as we should, and it will have an impact on our national security. And so you've got to be there. I can tell you from my own experience serving in war zones, that's why we deploy to the front lines in harm's way on the watch, uh, because if we're not there, then we're not able to collect the intelligence. You know, there was a—go ahead. Sorry, Dan. No, I I, I was just going to add, this administration is certainly—certainly wants to be careful— about ensuring that we adhere to the law of war and that we strike the right targets. And if you want to be sure about hitting the right targets, you got to be there to collect um, intelligence with as close to certainty as possible. See, we're not trying to instill democracy. I think what people don't no. know who aren't, uh, who don't have your job or don't have your experience is that we get a lot of intelligence by being there. And what you said today, and I've been rolling your sound bites from last night, from this morning rather, and you said, look at where it is. It's around China. It's uh, bordered on uh, Russia. Then you got Pakistan and Iran. Uh, that's what Afghanistan in the middle of. That gives us a looking glass to a very problematic region for America. Correct? Yeah. Look, the world is really small and flat and interconnected. And if you've got a threat way out there, um, it's actually a lot closer than it used to be 100 years ago. And, you know, the late Charles Krauthammer always used to talk about a forward deployed presence so we could – um, detect the threats over there and deal with them over there so that they don't reach our shores. And I, I firmly believe that to be the case. I know that our, our brave patriots on the front lines are honored to be out there doing the job. Um, and uh, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, I was honored to be out there serving with them. I just that's, worry about those, what we do. those people who lost their lives in limb and, and somehow been physically diminished from Afghanistan will think it wasn't worth it. And it was. But the way it ends is the way they're going to. They might be uh, envisioning it. And I worry about that uh, because the way it's going to look in the region is like we lost. You could say whatever you want. And you could tell me the reality is different. But in the region, they beat the Soviets and they beat the U.S., right? Yeah, I mean, we, we tried to fight, you know, an insurgency in Afghanistan, and uh, and it's an ongoing insurgency. And I can tell you, when I was out overseas in Pakistan, I was asked by a congressman um, about, you know, what what's the end game here? And I said, well, we're going to have to be here until 
you know, Afghanistan is more functioning than failed states. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. And if we're not here, then we'll pay the price back home. Uh, and, you know, that's, I think, why we needed to stay. And, and you're right. You know, the Taliban will play this out as if they induced the United States to withdraw. Russia's doing the same thing. That's why they paid bounties to the Taliban. It's not to change, you know, the, the, um, the impact of the battle in Afghanistan. The bounty payments aren't going to do a whole lot towards that end. But Putin wanted to be perceived by his own security services and in the region as having played a role in forcing the United States out of what was a quagmire for the Soviet Union. And you all remember that Putin said, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest, like, geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. I expect him to think that. Is that coordinated with these sanctions? you think they're related at all, the sanctions that Russia got from us today? I, I think the sanctions are focused on uh, primarily on, on the solar winds, massive hacking, which you know, it was an intelligence collection effort by Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, the SBR, got into our critical infrastructure, our nuclear security agency, which is a big deal. It was also focused on um, the election interference and then a little bit of the Taliban bounty uh, issue yeah. as well. But I think the primary focus was solar winds. Daniel Hoffman, always great to talk to you, and uh, we'll see how this pullout goes. We need your expertise more than ever. Thank you. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The question still remains, and this is probably one of the larger questions that you'll have to get in a civil disposition. Uh, but how the hell do you confuse your taser with your gun? 26 years of experience, how do you do that? That's the fundamental question that people have. The weight difference, the color difference, all of those things. But with this charge, though, I don't think that you're going to get to the bottom of it during the criminal disposition of, it, of this case. Well, that's the story. Bakari Sellers, CNN, attorney and former Democratic member of South Carolina uh, in the House. He's talking about how do you change this and then indicates a little bit later on it has something to do with race. Vince Everett Ellison joins us now, author of The Iron Triangle. He's dealing with race issues his entire life, very direct about it. Vince, this tragedy, everybody agrees, that took place in Brooklyn, uh, in Brooklyn Center. Did race play a role from what you could see? No, uh, Brian, this was a tragedy. You know, William Faulkner said the, um, the, the past isn't dead. It isn't even the past. And the Democratic Party just needs dead black bodies in order to get what they want. This is a tragedy. Um, it, it, no fair-minded person would believe that this, 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 this uh, 26-year veteran went out there that morning seeking to kill a black man on camera. Uh, it, 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 it was a tragedy. It was sad. Uh, while I was watching the video, you can ask my wife, I was uh, saying to the screen, young man, please stop fighting. Young man, please stop fighting. If Benjamin Crump and Al Sharpton wanted to do some good, they would go down there and they would tell these young men to stop fighting the police because once you start fighting, accidents are more apt to happen. 
And one of the the common denominators with many of these tragedies is that they are resisting arrest, they're fighting the police, and I was taught when I was growing up, you never fight a man with a thirty-eight on his hip. (laughs) Uh, You just don't do it. So many things can go wrong, and we, 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 we're teaching this pride and this disrespect for authority in our community that's getting these young men killed. And instead of them going there and telling them, y'all, this is how you're supposed to act, when you go out into the city streets, these are not your streets. They belong to the city, the county, and the federal government. There are rules on these streets. And when you go there, you have to comply. And we'll come down and get you. And if the police do something wrong, we'll get them fired. But we want you to come home alive. We want you to come home alive. Please comply. And, Lord, when I watch this stuff on TV, every time I watch it and I see these young men not complying, I say to myself, this is not going to end well. This is not going to end well. This is not going to end well, and it never does. Right. I want you to hear what Benjamin Krupp, who represents the family and is representing uh, uh, the families in so many of these cases, George Floyd included. Listen to what he said. She did not have to even tase this young man. It was a misdemeanor warrant. They always seem to do the most engaged in the most excessive use of force when it's a marginalized minority. And George Floyd, they could have given him a ticket for this allegation of a $20 uh, fraudulent bill. They could have given him a ticket. They did not have to arrest him. But when it's black people, they seem to engage in the most excessive force, just like the lieutenant in Virginia. Is Is that rhetoric? Do you think he believes that? Do you believe that? Ben Crump and Al Sharpton are part of this, this entity I call the Iron Triangle. I wrote a book on it. Uh, most black preachers, most black politicians, and most black civic organizers, their job is to go into the black community and rabble-rouse and, and keep the black community afraid, thinking that they're under some type of um, uh, um, oppression, and make sure that they vote for the Democrat Party. Uh, the Re- Republican Party very seldom shows up in the black community, if at all. And you know there's an old football billion term that says 90% of any gig is just showing up. And they don't show up, so these guys have an opportunity to go through the black community and say anything that they want. Crump is a vulture, along with Sharpton. And they step beside their phones, and they wait for somebody to die, and then they go right to the place. Believe me when I tell you, they could not survive without black death. They could not survive without black carnage. This is, they stand on the ashes of the black community, and they benefit and they wear their two, $3,000 suits and live in their mansions while the rest of the black community is living in ultimate squalor. This is who they are. If you want, if you want to understand what's going on with critical race theory, it is the Democratic Party plan to do to white people exactly what they've done to most black Americans, make them hate themselves and destroy themselves. They've done this to us for 220 years. They've controlled our educational system. They have controlled our churches. They've controlled our civic organizations. And right now they found that many white people have started voting for the Republican Party, many working-class whites. That same group of white people that they had hating black people for 200 years have now gotten educated. And now they have to re-educate them out of their freedom and make them hate themselves. Exactly, This is exactly what they've done to the black community for the last 220 years. Now they're trying to do it to the white community. And I can tell these white parents right now, fight it. Fight it. Fight it. They will have your children in 10 years doing exactly what ours are doing now, killing one another, fighting one another, going to prison, fighting the police. This is their plan, and this is how they stay powerful. So here's what President Obama said. 
The fact that this could happen even now as the city of Minneapolis is going through the trial of Derek Chauvin and reliving the heart-wrenching murder of George Floyd indicates just how important it is to conduct full and transparent investigation, but also how badly we need to reimagine policing and public safety in this country. Should we reimagine policing? The only way you reimagine policing is if you you give um, uh, every American the right to keep and bear arms. You can't take away the police and then take away the rights of free citizens to keep and bear arms and protect themselves at the same time. But this is what they want because this is how they get ultimate control. Once you take away protection, oh, yeah, you can uh, sell as many drugs as you want in the black community. You can turn our our daughters into prostitutes like what they're trying to do anyway. You can have the gambling houses. You can have the crime. You know, you can, you, can, you, you can have a dysfunctional family. This is their plan. They want the police out. And when they get the police out, they can really do a number on us then. And then they can make the black community and the places where they live a complete sanctuary for all the illegals that they're bringing in over the uh, border so they can displace our, our, our population and, and our electorate. This is their ultimate goal. They want the police out for a reason. Uh, they want the police out because they have the same plan for America as Hitler had uh, inside of Nazi Germany. They want us under their complete control. And if you don't have a gun and there's nobody there to protect you like the police, they have you. So, no, you don't need to reimagine the police. But you know what? If you say, yeah, man, if you take out all the police but allow all of us to have a gun, you'll still start changing their tune. Because they definitely, they definitely don't want to see the black community armed and defending themselves. So, so by the way, just to inform everybody, Jerry Nadler is now speaking on the Supreme Court steps, and he's talking about uh, adding four Supreme Court justices. And they're going to put that measure up for the House. But you saw Ro Khanna joined us earlier today. Another Democrat says, I'm not for that. I'm for term limits, 20 years, 15 years. I'm not for fattening the court, but we'll see. This is radical stuff that's taking place. So we're speaking with Vincent Everett Ellison, author of uh, The Iron Triangle, about the African-American community and as it relates to law enforcement in America. So, Vince, what is the problem? What is a problem you think America should address? If I was talking to you in 1964, you would have a different attitude towards me. You'd say, there is a problem. I got problems voting. Now, I got a problem. I'm tired of going to the back of the bus. I'm not going to use a separate water fountain. You know, when I travel with my team, black players stay in one hotel, white players stay in the other. You would be saying that to me, right? Well, what I would be telling you is that we, do, we, need, we need to learn to love ourselves. We cannot spend our time uh, being concerned about how other people view us. That's our biggest problem. You know, one thing I learned about reading the history of America and the reason why the uh, white, white men were so powerful all the way all throughout the earth is that they never cared about how anybody else thought about them. They went about their business. And whenever you are trying to control things that are outside of your purview, you have already lost. We are trying to control how people view us. We need to be concerned about two things, how we view ourselves and how God views us, period. And you know what will happen after you do that? Other people will fall in line. We are still marching. We are still burning things in the streets. We're still complaining about voting like down in Georgia. Nothing has changed. And if Satan walks this earth, he lays his head at the DNC. This is what they want. The reason why the black community remains at the bottom of every socioeconomic statistic in America, even 50 years after the Civil Rights Movement, is that the one thing that we never learned to do, and that is love ourselves. And critical race theory is trying to teach white people to do the same thing, not love themselves. It is what the left does. The only way one can be free is they have to love themselves and they have to believe that they have been touched by God and that they deserve to be free and that they are free. 
see, we still keep making this same mistake, Brian, that this can be done through legislation, that this can be done by trying to talk police out of doing what police do. No, we have to control our own actions. If we, tell, if we teach our young men how to act properly when they go out, these killings and these altercations with police officers will dwindle. But then what happens? The Democratic Party, Sharpton, Crump, and all these guys lose their control. They don't want that. They need us for cannon fodder, and they've always used us for it. We never gained anything from it, never. All we've gained is the right to vote. And guess what we voted for when we got the right to vote? The very same Democrats that was beating the hell out of us before we had the right to vote. We put them right back in power. Same situation in, in 1876. You're a historian. You know that the whole South in the 1876 until Hayes-Tilden election went Democrat until they came back down here and understood that the uh, uh, white Democrats had put together the Mississippi plan. What did the Mississippi plan do? It used bribery, intimidation, vote stuffing to, to, to make black people vote for them. And they took the whole South. They have never stopped it. This and, is what they do. But now somehow they reversed it, and it makes it looks like Republicans were the one. People have to be reminded it was Lincoln that was a Republican. Jim Crow was a Democratic brainchild. That's right. And, and when Martin Luther King Jr. marched, Martin Luther King Jr. marched against Democrats. Every one of these southern states are run by Democrats. Every uh, big city he marched in was run by Democrats. Democrats have always been the bane of the existence of America. They've always been this party. That, that, that walked around in darkness, uh, the Civil War, uh, slavery, Jim Crow, abortion. Um, uh, they passed the, the Equality Act that basically said that Christianity was discriminatory. This is the Democrat Party. This is who they are. And I'm going to tell you, man, if we do not wake up and understand who these people are, we're going to, uh, it was going to be like pancreatic cancer. We're going to wake up one day and find out our country's been eaten up and we can't save it. They, with the Pike and the Supreme Court, like you're talking about here, they're showing you what they're trying to do. They're not kidding. They are coming for the whole thing. And, when, and if they get it, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're doomed as a country, no doubt yeah. about it. Vince Everett Ellison, thanks so much. Pick up his book, The Iron Triangle, and follow him at Vince E. Ellison. Thanks, Vince. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one 408 7669 Take some calls and find out if indeed there's a need to know more. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Educating the public about an important reform to the structure of the Supreme Court. One that by historical standards is long overdue. Everything that Senator Markey said about the maneuvers of Senator McConnell and the Republicans delegitimizing the Supreme Court is obviously true. There is no justification. There can be no justification for what they did. And how can Americans look at the Supreme Court and expect it to do justice, to do equal justice, when it has been so severely politically and obviously politically manipulated? Jerry Nadler, an embarrassment to New York. 
uh, has just on the Supreme Court steps. They're all talking. Now it's uh, Mondaire Jones, the new congressman who's a member of the squad, talking about their radical views to add four new Supreme Court justices to the court. This is just a week after the president of the United States said, I'm going to put together a 36-member panel to study ways to make the Supreme Court better. I'm not for that either. I think it's insulting to think that you can have an executive branch, legislative, the judicial branch, I think it's wrong. Uh, and just to, you know, maybe the judicial branch is looking at the scene. There's too much power of the executive branch. Combine with Congress and see what happens. So uh, we're giving you the latest to give in their speech. Now, we also have Nancy Pelosi, who had a press conference prior to this outdoor press conference on the Supreme Court steps. Listen to what she said about this bill. Do you support Jerry Nowther's bill to expand the Supreme Court by four seats? And would you commit to bringing that bill to the floor? No. I, I support the president's commission to study such a proposal. Yeah, it's unbelievable that Nadler, still trying to get attention, uh, just a dour, angry guy. Uh, let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-GOLD. A sad day. Anytime a big-time relationship ends, I feel like I was part of it, and now I'm up for adoption. Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez have officially called it quit. More of a quit, uh, quits. Um, this time it's more permanent, announcing the end of their engagement. Each is going their own way professionally. I'm just so glad I didn't let them buy the Mets. The couple's been together for four years, engaged since 2019. They had a wedding plan, but COVID hit, so they postponed it. Good thing they would have been divorced. It was early March when sources close to the couple had told us they split. We did not want to believe it here on the Brian Kilmeade Show, but now it's true. A-Rod even flew to the Dominican Republic to be with J-Lo as she worked on a movie. Sources connected to the new execs tells us both made a real attempt to work things out. It just is not going to happen. I guess his consolation prize is now instead of the Mets, it's the Minnesota Timberwolves. Yeah, he's got the Timberwolves, so he's buying that team. One thing about him, I think he's financially savvy. I don't. Are they going to sue each other for each other's money? Aren't they worth billions yeah, of dollars I each? I, I don't. Th- I don't see those two. Uh, Eric, could you put that. your best person on this? Thank you. Next. Uh, federal prosecutors will not charge a police officer who shot and killed a woman as she climbed through the broken part of a door during the insurrection of the U.S. Capitol. You know about her? It's Ashley Babbitt, 35-year-old Air Force veteran from San Diego, uh, subscriber of QAnon. We go back and forth with different Fox anchors. Not me, not one of them. Out of nowhere, an arm comes out, a gun goes off. There were other people around there, including people in SWAT outfits. They did not see her as a threat, but she is dead. We are not going to even know any details of this shooting. Tucker talked about this last night. Uh, Something's got to give here, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously the main thing was if she wasn't as part of this riot that was happening in the Capitol, she would not have been Not defending her action, but when someone gets shot, they should at least tell us who shot him. Next, Ellen DeGeneres. Every time she turns out she's brutal to her crew, her ratings are going down, down, down. They now hit an all-time low, down 11% in just one week. Just 800,000 viewers. This is a nationally syndicated show. I think it was once the most outside Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, the most popular syndicated show. Live with uh, uh, Kelly and Ryan not doing great either. They got a 1-8. She's getting 800,000. That's about a 1. She's losing to programs like Wendy Williams and Maury Povich now. Think about that. I don't know. I guess the perception about it, I don't know where she goes from here, but I guess she's got a game show. Next. Waking up to your favorite song can make you feel more alert. A new study finds many people deal with sleep inertia, the feelings of grogginess and lack of alertness from simply not being able to wake up. To beat this, Australian researchers, I love them, say the answer will be waking up 
not to the sound of your alarm clock, but to a catchy tune. So what's your catchy tune that you would wake up to? I wake up to a loud alarm clock. I can't be groggy. I'm my, I'm at my best when I'm alone, uh, waking up, taking a shower. There's something annoying waking dressed. you up. A loud buzzing right. noise would really start your day well. By the way, any song that you like, you'll be sick of by Friday. Because you're going to associate it with waking up at 2.30 in the morning. Interesting. My, I have to say my favorite song since 2015 is now Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell. Mine is Hey, Hey, We're the Monkeys uh, to me because I love the series. Uh, it was a reality show before there were reality shows. They weren't even a real band. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.